Good evening, everybody. Find the table, find some people. Let's get up for the worship band, worship team. So good to be back in America. So good. I missed you guys, kind of, sort of. It's been a month. Things, uh, we had a great trip. I was with the Slovakia team, with Alicia, with Sky, John, John, Kim, Lisa. It was an amazing trip, amazing trip in Slovakia. I learned a lot. I learned that, um, well, I learned so much over there. I learned that they have great ice cream, that's for one. Love that. It's only like a euro. Well, not, that kind of got me off topic. <laughs> they have really good ice cream. It's like gelato. It's, it's super ice cream. But also that um, you accomplish more as a team than as individuals. I really saw that this trip, that everybody had a part. Everybody had a part to play, that people were flexible, that they had humility, and there, there just was a willingness to do whatever it took to um, make make the dream happen, make the success, make the trip happen. And so that was a huge thing that I saw, and it, it just blew me away because the trip was, we're going to have to, we're going to explain it one night. I think we're going to have a night of missions coming up and talking about our trips to Mexico and Slovakia and the missions that we do here as a church. But it was just uh, fantastic. It's been seven years since I've been there, and so going back this time was a bit of um, reminiscing, but also seeing how they've progressed over there. And lastly, one thing I learned is that we're really blessed to have a church like this here. This, this isn't the norm in the world. This might be normal in America, but it's not the norm in a lot of the world to be able to come and fellowship, to have a meal, to have worship, to have a facility like this. This is uh, truly a blessing to come back. And uh, it's just amazing. But the thing is, is that sometimes uh, you realize what's important when you leave, what's the most important thing? And I think what I realize is that the most important thing is uh, relationships. It's one thing the Europeans are good at. They have these cafes. They have. Uh, they love to just sit out there and just have coffee, and they and they can just be there all day. It seems like they're just all day. They have these cafes. They're out in you know these little pretty umbrellas, and and they just love to sit there and chat. And I was discussing with my friend. I'm like, what's the difference between Europeans and Americans, because he's an American who moved to Europe, and he's like, I've noticed that Americans like being entertained. They can't just sit there and, and talk and, you know, sh shoot the breeze, talk about the news. He's like, they like to be entertained, you know, they want to go ziplining, they want to go to a movie. It's like when they're in a group, they have to do something, they can't just talk. And I realized, it's like, oh, that's kind of true. And I hope to bring that back to realize that, you know, the relationships that you build are very important. You know, we get distracted easily from that, but it's so super important in that. And so, kind of blabbing, but I have a lot to talk about. And so, um, a lot to talk about. Yeah, how much time do I got? I got a lot of time. Maybe I'll tell a joke in the middle of it. I learned some Christian pickup lines. It's a good ones. I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one. That was really funny. It's like, one line goes like this. It's like, I didn't believe in predestination until I met you. It's a good one. It's a good one. It's pretty cheesy. Ozzy might use that. I won't use that one. 
<laughs> Just joking. Love you, Ozzy. But anyways, it's good to be back, and, and uh, we'll talk. We'll, if you're interested more in, in Europe or Slovakia, some of the trip, we have a, you can talk to me or some of the team sitting over there. Uh, we'd love to talk about that. And hopefully, you come next year, as we're going to go again, hopefully, next year. That being said, I haven't been here the last few weeks, and so I've talked with Jeremy what you guys have been going through. We're going through the second book, the second letter to the Corinthians, and from what I know, because I have the Bible, is that what's been happening is that there's been some false apostles or super apostles, Paul kind of sarcastically calls them, they have been undermining Paul's work and his credibility, his authority in the gospel. They seem like they've kind of creeped into the Corinthian church and they've been proclaiming a different gospel and even uh, slandering him or even asking certain questions of like, how could Paul really be an apostle when he's gone through such persecutions, when he's gone through imprisonment, when he's gone through trials? Like, how can God be with that person? How could God's blessing and favor be upon somebody like that? Because obviously, it seems like he's gone through all these things. It doesn't seem like God is with them. And if you think about that, is that a leader you would follow yourself? Is that somebody you think that is credible? I think that sometimes it's a challenging question because sometimes we want to follow the leader that seems like they're polished, they have everything together, that they have the nice whitened smile, they have the suit, they have the car, they have things together, right? My friend's a financial advisor. When you go to a financial advisor, you want to make sure that they're driving a nicer car than you, that they have the house, right? Or you go to the doctor or the personal trainer even, and you want to make sure that they look better than you because that's why you're going to them. But in a sense, is, is this the leader you want to follow? Paul, you look at his life. You guys just went through that maybe last week or the week before, the things that he went through. You guys remember some of the trials Paul faced? You just shout him out. He was shipwrecked. He was in prison multiple times. Yeah, he was flogged, stoned to death. Not to death. Well, actually, we'll go in that later. Whole theological issue right there. He might have been killed and he might have been resurrected from that. Anything else? Slandered. He was uh, without food, without adequate clothing. He went through a lot. And so we're going to see tonight, he's going to be kind of almost boasting a little bit. He's kind of what he calls it, he's being a little bit foolish, but he's going to be kind of boasting because he's trying to show the Corinthian church that he is credible. So even though he's boasting, he really doesn't want to boast in his experiences because what he's going to talk about is his experience of being taken up in heaven. That's a pretty incredible experience. That would be amazing. And so he's going to be talking about himself um, in that. And so if you guys want to stand with me to honor God's word, we're in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. I'm in the Holman Christian Standard Version tonight. You have a phone. It says, boasting is necessary. It's not profitable, but I will... Move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. He's talking about himself. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words which a man is not allowed to speak. Let us pray. Father God, I pray that you would be with us tonight. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us what we need to hear, God. It would be a timely word, something that would help us, encourage us, reprove us, or, or to just be something that to store for later. But I pray that you'd be in this place, and we thank you um, for Jesus. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So like I was saying, Paul's, he's not trying to boast, but he has this, I guess, apparently 14 years ago. This is around maybe 10 or 12, 14 years after he became, he had his Damascus experience and was radically converted to Christianity. But he has this amazing vision of heaven, and whether it was in the body or out of the body, or somehow, some way, he visited paradise. He calls it third heaven, but... As we know it, it's paradise. They had a kind of a slightly different view of what that was. They kind of believed in different levels, and that earth was a level, and then there was Sheol. And I could show you a graphic. I don't want to get into that. But as we know it, it's, it's heaven, paradise. And what he's trying to do is that he's, he's trying to defend, like I was saying, his authority, his credibility as an apostle. He's trying to show the Corinthians who he is, that he is an apostle, because apparently there was super apostles that maybe have boasted in some of their experiences. Maybe they said that they've heard a new teaching or they saw an angel or something of that sort. But what the thing is that we can learn is that sometimes as people, we make the mistake of focusing on the wrong credentials. You know, sometimes we, we look at the wrong thing for our leaders, right? We kind of live in a time where, you know, you ask, why is America the way it is, or why have we been this way, is because I think sometimes we, we don't look at the characteristics of a good leader, or we don't, um, <clears throat> what's the word, we don't require leaders to have great character. And so part of tonight is, is um, asking ourselves, what are the true marks of a good leader, of a, of a true servant of Christ. We kind of had a question similar to this, I believe maybe a month or two ago, but I wanted you to explore your tables, uh, this question of what characteristics do you look for in a leader or spiritual leader that enable you to trust them? And specifically that part of trusting, what allows you to trust somebody? And talk about that at your table for a few minutes. All right, go. All right, you guys can wrap that up. I think this is an important question because a lot of people trust people without really knowing who they are, right? You may be, and if you think about it, I'm not just talking about spiritual leaders, political leaders, because I think in a lot of ways we're always being led by something or someone. Maybe it's a guy on the radio. You listen to a radio talk show. What is that person like? You know, do they have character? What makes them trustworthy to you? Is it because they ha they're able to communicate in an entertaining manner? Is it because they dress nicely? Is it because they have a success or wealth? 
There's a lot of different reasons, and I think we've kind of gotten away from good biblical reasons of why we could trust somebody. But for us, I think one of the biggest things of trustworthiness of a leader, such as Paul, is do they have the likeness of Jesus? Do their words, do their actions, do their relationship match up with the life of Jesus? If remember Paul, he, he said, he spoke, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's a pretty profound thing to say. That's pretty bold. But it's also pretty vulnerable that he is willing to show and reveal his life to people and show them the right way to live, the right way to think, to believe. But that's one of the things. Also, I wanted to look at maybe uh, some other qualities of leadership. What were some of the qualities that you guys found at your table? You can just name some real quick. Honesty. Selfless. So they follow through, yeah. One more. Decisive. So those are some good qualities. I was, I was reading, um, when I was in Europe, I was reading a book. Who like, who's seen Band of Brothers here? You guys like Band of Brothers? One of my favorite miniseries. I've been really studying a lot about World War II, again, because I think World War II, some of the people that came out of there was the, they call them the greatest generation. I think it's for a reason. My grandpa fought in World War II, and just the people in that time were um, amazing of what they sacrificed, what they did for this country and for the world. Because Europe wouldn't be the same today if it wasn't for, for uh, what happened for D-Day. But uh, he wrote a book, uh, Band of Brothers Follows Easy Company, it's a paratrooper company, and he, this a guy, Major Winters, a leader in the company, wrote about leadership. He was one of the leaders that got to choose young men to lead, to, to be a part of it. And this is some of the things he said, and he's also uh, a God-fearing man, which I think is cool. But his number one was character, which I think is proven quality, trustworthiness. Do they follow through on um, their beliefs? Do they follow through on their word, their promises? Are they honest? The character is a huge one, and I think that's pretty much the number one for leadership. Some other things that stuck out, he had 10 of them, was that um, he really said that a leader is someone that leads from the front. If you think about it, if you can actually sum up leadership in a word or statement, follow me would probably be the best. You remember somebody else who said that in the Bible, follow me? Jesus, right? He said, follow me. Like Paul, imitate me. Somebody that leads from the front. Number seven on his list was to remain humble, not worrying about who receives the credit. And I like this last one, is number nine, is that a leader is someone who earns respect, not entitled to it because of rank or position. And I really see that last one, and uh, I see all of them, but especially the last one in Paul, is that he's entitled to really command a lot of authority, you know, to, to, to boast almost in his position as an apostle, but yet he chooses to do something a little bit different. And we'll see in verse 5, he says, I will boast about this person, he's talking about himself, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I will not be a fool because I'll be telling the truth. But I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. So while the super apostles 
Paul mentions are pointing to their credentials. Maybe they're pointing to their letters of recommendations, which was common in that time. Their spiritual experiences or superior intellect. Paul points to his weaknesses. Paul's inviting the Corinthians to simply look at him as a man, as a human. To trust in what I underlined, to trust in what they can see or hear from me and not something else. That's pretty incredible if you think about it. He's not trying to boast in the fact that he saw heaven. He's boasting in the fact of, I want you to see who I am, that you see me as a person, you see my life, and that builds credibility, that builds trust. Even in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you've become dear to us. I wonder if Paul's making a mistake. If you think about it, he was at a time when his reputation was at stake. People were undermining him, and yet he's choosing to be vulnerable to, to show that he's someone very much like them, a human who is faced with tremendous pressure with persecutions, with trials, vulnerabilities. There was a leader that I heard that kind of had a similar realization, like Paul, of why he's doing this. And this leader says this out. Sometimes it's a good thing that your closest friends and family know your weaknesses so that when they see something great in your life, they know it's of God and not from you. It's kind of humbling sometimes because I think about it, even my own family, you know, they probably don't see me as someone that would speak on stage. All they really know is I'm, I participate in church and that I do something at church, but they don't really know, you know, that I speak in front of people, you know, and they probably also know who I am. They know my faults. They know my everything about me, but that's a great thing because then they can also see what God has done. You know, and they can give credit to God and like, wow, God has done something. It wasn't of my own power. It wasn't of my own um, intellect or something that I conjured up. It was something of God. And that's what Paul's trying to do. Because often we're dazzled by leaders who have the strong, charismatic personality to have the biggest following or the most um, respectable education, the expert in the field. But who are they really when they're not in the spotlight? Do we know who they are? Their character, have they been tested? Have they gone through the fire and have come out the other side intact? Or is that person just somebody on the screen, just smoke and mirrors? I was reading in this book, I read a lot of it. I finished it when I was over there. And Major Winters was talking about how the leaders of his company died all the time. I think over 50% of them died um, and over the course of the war. And so this led a huge gap, a leadership gap that needed to be filled. And he was saying that there was plenty of new officers coming in, plenty of new ones coming in. And some of them even came out of prestigious West Point School, which is an officer school. It's very... Um, very highly respected. But he said they, they didn't have the same credentials as some of the other men because he calls it, they, he, they didn't have this baptism of fire, which led to trust and 
comp- confidence that the men required in a leader. They simply had the, they simply had the, <clears throat> the paper, the, as you would say, what you'd say, maybe just the degree, maybe just the, the, the education of a leader. But he says the real leaders, the ones who he chose to fill some of those places were the, actually the people who had endured D-Day, that fought alongside the other men, and that they had made it through this baptism of fire, which actually proved that they had what it takes. And I find that's really interesting because <clears throat> I wonder if, uh, if any of these super apostles had been through what Paul had been through. Because Paul had a baptism of fire. It may not have been in, on D-Day, but it was through all his circumstances and trials that we all spoke about, his being shipwrecked, being lashed, being persecuted, being, being uh, <clears throat> hungry, and yet enduring. And if you think about it, that was Paul's lifestyle, was proclaiming the gospel, and it cost him. His message actually cost him something. It wasn't just fluff. And for me, I think a message is most powerful when it's something that's lived rather than something that is shouted, something that is not without a basis of that. In all honesty, who would you rather follow, if you think about it? Someone that tells you what you want to hear or somebody that has the scars to prove it? And I think that's what Paul's trying to convey to the church, is that, hey, I have scars. I've been through this. This is the message I've been carrying. And you've seen me. Not something that um, you can't prove or something else. But it goes on to say in the scripture, it says, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a, messen- a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Con- concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what this could mean. You know, was it, did Paul have an ongoing struggle about the, the, the turmoil happening in the churches that he planted? Was it about these opponents or false teachers? Was it a physical ailment such as um, some scholars believe he suffered from poor eyesight? Was it his weakness as a public speaker, as the scriptures say that he, he was terrible, he was um, powerful and weighty in his letters, but his physical appearance was weak and his, and his public speech despicable? Was it demonic oppression in the form of the Jews and Gentiles who would persecute him, who would beat him, who would literally chase him out of the city? Or could it encompass all these things? What I do know is that if you read it, if you look at the Greek, I had um, some different translations because Satan can also mean adversary, accuser, and the torment can also is strike with the fist. But I don't believe that God would send an evil spirit to torment Paul in order to keep him humble because that would, that would uh, violate the cornerstone belief that God is a good father and that he gives good and perfect gifts and that he's faithful and fulfills his promises. But what I do know is that God wanted Paul to be dependent on, upon him. 
And he had to such a degree of revelations of a power in his life that God knew that Paul was actually more useful um, as a servant when he faced trials and circumstances than if he didn't face them at all. Which is kind of crazy to think about. That God can use us more, almost, if we have struggles and have things in our lives than if we didn't. I think that's hard to swallow sometimes because as humans, sometimes we like having leaders that are perfect, that don't have struggles because that's what we kind of idolize. You know, we want the life that is comfortable. We want the life that is pain-free and we want God to be the vehicle for us to, to get those things. But that's the furthest from the truth as Paul experienced. He had a very difficult life and yet he had found joy that the joy of the Lord was his strength. In fact, I think that I was trying to imagine if Paul was a leader today, if we would even think he was that famous. Because sometimes we make him out to be some kind of hero or larger-than-life character, which he is when you read the scriptures. But if he was around today, I don't know if he would be the number one speaker or the number one person people wanted flocked to or went to. In fact, it seems like he, he wasn't that popular back in the day. He was just someone that was a tireless servant for Christ. And he wrote these letters to encourage the churches. I don't know, it's something to think about. But what I get gleaned from this passage is that not only is God there for us when we need him, but that um, he redeems suffering and he uses it for his ultimate purposes in our lives. That yes, life may not be pain-free, struggle-free, or, um, or the like, but that God can use it to redeem, have redeeming value and purpose, to build character, to allow uh, his power to be shown through that. In our camps in Slovakia, we talked a lot about the life of Joseph and how that is just a perfect story of that. How I don't believe it was God's will for Joseph to be sold into slavery by his brothers, but God didn't waste it either. He didn't waste it because he knew that he was going to use that. He was going to use that evil that his brothers did, the jealousy of their hearts, but he was going to use that to save the nations through a famine. And so that's a hard, that's a hard passage. Even I was... Even I was having trouble with that because it, it really challenges that belief that, you know, I want to be God and I want to be comfortable and I want to have, you know, a perfect, easy life that, you know, that we like to have as Americans. <clears throat> but moving on. <clears throat> it says, therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and pressures because of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That word take pleasure is to be well pleased, to, to think it good. It reminds me a lot of uh, the passage in James where it says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds. And so in our groups, discuss that question. How can we think it good that we face weakness, insults, 
catastrophes, persecutions, pressure. So you can talk about that question if you have some time. Talk about how have you seen Christ's power in a time of weakness? And so let's talk about this. Go ahead. So I remember um, <clears throat> many years ago, I was speaking to a young lady in Slovakia. And um, this was many years ago. I was a younger believer at the time. Maybe I was in my early 20s. But we're having this conversation because she was an atheist. She was an atheist, and she read a lot of the atheist works or of Nietzsche and different people. And so we had this discussion, and she was saying that Christianity was a crutch. That is simply a crutch for people who couldn't handle the hardship of reality. And of course, of being a young and immature believer, I was arguing with her and saying that she was furthest from the truth and that she was wrong. And I was trying to make my case that Christianity wasn't a crutch. I said, you're absolutely wrong. And now today, she's a, she's a believer now, and she's a, <clears throat> a friend. And, but the thing is, is that today, I would answer that question differently. Because I realized I would have answered differently because I would have said, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. But you're wrong because Christianity isn't a crutch. It's a wheelchair. It's, it's, it's more than a crutch. It's a wheelchair. Because a lot of times um, what I realize is that everything depends upon Jesus. And everything has been done at the work of the cross. It's been done. The victory has been won. It's, it's been accomplished. It's, it's, been, it's enough, the work of the cross. But a lot of times we try adding to that. We try to, we try to, we don't actually believe that it's enough. And I, I'm going to explain that somewhat uh, with this watchman knee. Is this what he writes? And it and it really showed me that this was true. He says, Christianity means that God has done everything in Christ and that we simply step by faith into the enjoyment of that fact. Most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit. So he's saying that Christ invites us to sit at the completion of the work of the cross. It says actually that Christ has sat down to the right hand of the Father. Sitting is... Um, reveals that all the priests would used to stand in um, the Old Testament, in the temple. There was no chairs. And so the fact that Christ is seated, that he's sitting, um, implies that it's been done, it's finished. Also, he writes, Christianity does not begin with walking, it begins with sitting. If at the outset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to attain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. He continues, when we sit down on a chair, our entire weight rests upon the chair upon which we are sitting. So also in the spiritual realm, to sit down is simply to rest our whole weight, our load, ourselves, our future, everything upon the Lord. That's a cornerstone belief of Christianity. We, we get a rest. Everything, everything is completely dependent upon God and that we start from that place. And oftentimes I've learned that we do things backwards. I know I did things backwardly because what we really want is God to just take, for us to say, God, give me a 30-day 
maturity process, transformation process, and I'll jump through every hoop and I'll do everything that you say. You know, show me what to do and I'll do it. And it very much is this idea of religion, right? Being able to do something in order to attain something, to gain God's favor, to gain God's righteousness, to gain what he already has done. And so if we can realize that fact, it's a completely different ball game. And that instead of working for victory, you're working from victory. Instead of working, trying to for rest, you're, you're working from rest. In, in, instead of working so that you can be um, accepted by God, you've, you're already accepted by God. Instead of working for your righteousness, Christ already says that you're righteous in him. And so it's this completely different viewpoint. And that's why I say it's a wheelchair. Because a lot of times we're not humble enough to sit in that. It's like you would rather, you know, be limping across and trying to do it in your own strength than to just be seated in Christ and allow God to do the work. And that's kind of the whole idea of tonight is that, that God can do a lot more work if you're seated in that wheelchair than if you're trying to make it on your own, trying to walk in your own strength, if you just allow him to do that. I'll close with this uh, last part. It says, I have, and Paul closes, and he talks about uh, super apostles again. He says, I've become a fool. You forced it on me. I should have been endorsed by you since I'm not in any way inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of an apostle perform a great endurance among you, not only the signs, but also wonders and miracles. So that in what way were you treated worse than the other churches except that I personally did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. And so we close with this, um, this chapter, not this chapter, but this passage. Is that, in, in, that Paul wishes that the church endorsed him, that, he, that they support him as a leader. He wished that, all of, that they would have trusted him because they had saw his proven character. But the truth is, is that they wanted something more than that. You know, they, they believed a different gospel. They believed different leaders because they promised something that wasn't true. And I think that's a mistake we can all make, is that if you think about it as leaders, you know, we're not all, that all special. I could, you know, I wonder why people show up sometimes at this church, in all honesty. But the thing is, is that we show up because it's about what God can do through, through us. Not because of what we can orchestrate on our own. And sometimes I, I was wondering, I was kind of asking God, I'm like, why do you do that? You know, how come you don't just, um, why don't you just like, you know, just do something amazing through a leader or have like this charismatic guy that can just, uh, you know, convince everybody of the truth? Why do you use weak people as leaders, people that have struggles? Why do you do that? And it's really so that God can work through them because unless someone is humble, God can't work through you. And that's the posture that we have to stay in. And so that's the greatest lesson we can learn today is that God's power only works in our weakness, in our humility, when we allow him to do that. Amen? Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you, you sent Jesus, Lord, to, that Jesus wasn't, he wasn't anything, Lord, that, that people would, would recognize, Lord. He wasn't a man who was beautiful or someone that was a, a politician or someone that was anything, but he was someone that was completely dependent upon you and revealed the nature of the Father. Lord, there was, there was nothing about him, Lord, that, that we would see or that we would attract us to, to him other than who he revealed in the Father. And Lord, I just thank you, Father, that you choose to use leaders who are weak. God, that you choose to use people who are weak, Lord. That you use the weak to, to shame the strong. That you use the the dumb to, to shame the wise of this world. And God, I don't know why you do that. But I know, Lord, that, um, that you can use all of us. That you can use any person, any man, woman, child in this room to accomplish your purposes, Lord. And I pray, actually, I feel like sometimes um, there's some of us that we feel that we can't be used by you because we're imperfect. That we look at our imperfections, we look at our faults, and we say to you that, God... You can't use me. I'm disqualified. Why don't you use somebody else? But I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to them and show them, that God, that you have accept, uh, accepted them just as who they are. And that because of their weakness, because of, of that, that you can, your power can be shown through them. Lord, that they too can be a leader, that they too can be someone who uh, does mighty things, not because it's it's who they are, but it's because who you are. And so I pray that tonight, Lord, that you would um, stir up leaders, God. Maybe even people who've never spoken on stage before, who've never led anything in their life, that their friends or family may think that they're unfit to be a leader or that they don't have it in them, Lord. I pray that you would raise up much more leaders in, your, in this body, that it wouldn't just be a few people in this church, that it would be... Uh, many more men, women, and children in this place, God, because I think that's the best way that you reveal your power is through people who aren't perfect, people who are weak even, who are unlearned, untrained, who the world has cast to the side. And so, Father, I just thank you that we are blessed enough to meet in this building, that we have this place, that we have one another, that we have your Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so, I pray for this week that you just bless us, that we'd be a testimony and light to those around us in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.